also, I don't even think about it because I'm not spending money on big purchases because I'm not doing anything. So I'm like, yeah, I can spend $30 on a pair of shorts. Listen to the anti-capitalist consumers. <laughs> oh, I never said I was anti-capitalist. Did that ever get established? I I'm, mean, I'm pro I think stuff. it's a fair inference from some of your previous Well, statements. you know, you know what right. they say about inferring. It makes an ass of you. <laughs> I run. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Happy 2021. Hi, everyone, and hello, listeners. We missed you. We missed you. We um, we were uh, busy. <laughs> by way of apology and explanation, we were busy there's a worldwide pandemic going on and it's quite traumatizing and it was just trying to fit it all in was tough but we're so glad to be back because we have so much to say how are you two i'm all stressed um i'm good i'm good i'm i'm cautiously optimistic really Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm cautiously pessimistic. So, Jason, where do you fall on that? Those should scale? be our topics. I feel. Like. Are you more of a Trisha? Or are you more of a Chris? <laughs> I would say I'm very optimistic, but pretty stressed out right now. I think everyone's stressed out, and you know what? Trisha gave me a pep talk this morning. I'm just gonna say it on the podcast. So everyone, stop fetishizing normal. There's no more normal. It's been thrown out. Um, how are you two coping? Reading. I've actually just been reading. You're always I'm reading. I'm still enjoying reading trashy romances. That oh, has been a godsend. To like me. 30 years running now at this point. I mean, yeah, but you know what? It's un- it, you know, what? I have to say, if there's one thing the pandemic has done, is brought back my love of romance novels. Can I, I just, can I blow up your spot faded. real quick? Let me just mm-hmm. blow up your spot. Remember, can you tell everyone about when you worked at Romantic Times? Can you talk <laughs> yeah, about that? I used to work at Romantic Times Magazine, which was absolutely wonderful. I did it for an internship in my master's program. Can you tell people what that is? Can you just the Romantic Times? You know what? It's a monthly magazine that reviews romance novels, and it actually sort of takes you in a deep dive in that world. Which, by the way, people are super dismissive of romance novels, but they are the foundation of the paperback, the mass marketed book industry. Oh. They, they chug, they, 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 pu- they push out those books weekly, daily. When you say people are dismissive, is it like they're doubled over laughing like Chris just was for, for two I minutes? I mean, I think it is, you know what it is? It's, it's anytime it comes to women's fiction, right? It's like people will, people will read a Pritchett novel, whatever, one of those airport books that's written by a guy and they love it. And sim- those are basically romance novels for dudes. But romance novels, the traditional romance novel that most people think mass marketed romance novel, it's like, oh, women read those, but they're lovely. They're wonderful. So that magazine would review them monthly. And the best, the reason why I did it was like, oh, I need a spot. It's like, I'll 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 intern at Romantic Times magazine. I got to, I got to interview authors. You know, what was happening at the time though, was sort of the emergence of romance novels for black people by black people at that time it was like arabesque was on the scene and so i had to interview sort of like these early romance novel it's the formulaic, it's the formulaic nature of it that i'm responding to you're like jason you read airport lit you're constantly I was gonna recommending say, it i do not claim that the airport lit i read is any you know higher brow than romance i agree forget brow though nature. like it's formulaic right but they're all formulaic we just yeah, all the airport it. lit you're reading is like similar to each other, like in tone and pace. Yes. Generally, that's the T. That's the thing that romance novels are about. Look, let's be real. Shakespeare's plays are incredibly formulaic. Five acts, tragedies, they all die at the end. (laughs) Jason, spoiler alert. Comedies that someone gets married at the end. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with formulaic. I agree, it's the poetry in between. Yeah, they're human drama, right? The human drama isn't about what happened it's what happens and how you feel about it right and that's like that's the stuff that's Mm -hmm. the stuff of a novel so a really good romance novel really allows you to feel like the the um the couple has connected with each other um the character moves the plot along well Hmm? you're like a romance novel scholar 
You really are. I mean, you're, you're I do deep, have a you're of, deep like, in the pocket of big romance. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> romance Landia. She's a brand champion. Brand ambassador. Well, nonetheless, you know what it is? It is very much like a comfy blanket. And mm. I read romance novels throughout my teen years. And they gave me lots of solace. Mm. And I sort of fell out of it. And I have to say the pandemic has reignited my sort of appreciation for them. And I've just been enjoying it. It's just been really lovely. Jason, what's been your go-to getaway for during this pandemic? That's interesting. Mine's crossword puzzles. I, I have this app on my phone. Oh, you, know, you recommended it once. I have to watch it. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> how bad is that? I recommend it, which is terrible. And now I'm even using it for another thing. But but uh, no, it, that's, that's what it is. At night, there's a certain point where I'm like, there's nothing I can mentally do except crossword puzzles. Can I just say, listeners, mm-hmm. that Christopher has on a robe and his shoulders are so distracting. Why? Because they're sexy? You're trying to seduce us. Are you trying to seduce Am us? Am I trying Mr. to seduce Hudson? you? Here's his, his two shoulders. This is great for podcasting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's partially because I was just talking about romance novels, but you know, the, the idea yeah, of yeah. like body parts, like that's like a completely just, oh. non-starter body part. But oh. like well, <laughs> the shoulders well, are not starters. No, what, what's funny, Trisha, before you even came on, I said to Chris, like, I'm used to seeing you bare chested during this and somehow the robe is like it adds like a dramatic flair i mean it would have been better if you were just it's topless just but chest. somehow I, enough. well i could take this off but you know what making funny. a case for the fact that clothing helps <laughs> sure uh what I've been doing during the pandemic, speaking of my sexy shoulders, is I've been going to the gym like five, oh. six times a week because wow. they're open and they're not my house, and I can go there and spend time. <laughs> That's do you, have, do you have to do you have to do you have to like clean everything down yourself? Yes, you have to. You got to oh. mask up. Like they they restrict how many people can come in. Like when I pick up the barbells, like I put like one of those wipes in my hand so I never actually touch anything. But mm-hmm. you know when you live in like a tiny shoebox apartment and you can't even go down to the Starbucks or the library to just sit and like answer some emails or whatever, you know, you can't even just sit at the cafe or the diner and just eat. It's, I tell you, I just go to the gym and sometimes I'm there and I'm in my <laughs> second hour. I was, one day I was there. I was like, well, I finished today's workout. I was like, well, let me just do tomorrow's workout while I'm here. <laughs> Never stopping to think that it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I will say though, to your point, like I, I'm a big stroller. I go out, you I stroll, stroll. town. I'm yeah. a stroller. And you know what I like about strolling is, is often stopping and having a coffee. Can I tell you the fact that you can't stop and sit anywhere? <gasps> what is that? Yeah. I, I just cannot. And also the idea of like moving things to your mouth. Like oh, that's yeah. not even like yeah. it's like oh I don't want to do anything across this area so <laughs> last thing on this because it's related it's cold in New York right now it's been like very cold for a very long time and before indoor dining um, opened up inadvisably I was somewhere and I was hungry and it's it's too cold to eat on the go you can't get like a slice of pizza or something and eat it also the aforementioned mask issue right yeah I was hungry and I was like oh my god. I have to go home. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the only option I have. There's no way to eat. I have to stop what I'm doing and go all the way home and eat and then come back out. <laughs> I was so fussed by this. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure billions of humans live just like that. Yeah, of course. But I was so fussed because I was like a full 20 minute walk from home. But I was like, well, what choice do I have? There's there's no food. Anyway, you spoiled okay. New Yorkers. They, <laughs> we certainly are. Speaking of which, let's move into topics, everyone. There's a nationwide debate on every dinner table, on every newscast about schools. Should schools be open, closed? When do they open? In thinking about it, I think a much more interesting question is why school? What school? What can we do with school? Listen, virtual schooling has been something that has been has been trying to be in the zeitgeist for like the past 40 years. But now the band-aid's been ripped off. Kids have experienced virtual education. Given now that we have technology, that we've seen other ways of schooling, 
like in our conversation about should we open up a poorly ventilated building to put kids in, um, instead of asking that question, should we not be asking a question more like, well, what are our schooling options? Like, let's look at populations. Like what is possible? And how does that question get avoided? And how does it become the, what I think I'm tipping my hand here. How does it become the reductive question is schools open or closed? I'm reminded when you asked that of something I heard you say, Tricia, many, many years ago. And I remember you saying something to the effect of, we should just be honest about what we have school for in our country, which is to put kids places, to get them off the streets. That sounds like something she would say. The first thing I would say in response to, to what, what you're asking, Chris, is one of the reasons why I think we have so much trouble thinking about children being educated in different ways from going to a school building from eight to three or whatever, is that in our society, we have built an entire economy around sending children, even before school age, because starting with daycare, sending children to places to be supervised by people we, on the whole, underpay while we adults can go work. And that's, that's what our economy is built around. And I think a lot of the school reopening pressure is much more I mean, there are people concerned about kids' education and saying, you know, it's better for them to be in person. I'm not dismissing that. But a lot of it is like, it's about normalcy. It's about, I got to go to work or adults need to get back to work. We've got to put kids places. And we start thinking long-term about what if kids are at home learning online or what if they're in some other configuration? We get really tripped up by that because it's not the way we've built our economy. But I also think it's kind of um, exciting, right? Which is, sounds horrific, but I probably is exciting because I don't have kids. But I mean, I talk to parents with kids and quite a number of them are black parents. And they're like, you know what? Some aspects of this, I wanna, I wanna keep um, because I'm actually able to give my kid individualized attention, which they sorely needed. And then there are the other questions around like socialization and all of these other pieces that um, I think it's probably a pretty compelling case, right? It's a compelling case for thinking about children's development, emotional and psychosocial development and the role that school plays in that. I'm excited by the idea of like the question of what is school and how should school be in this moment, right? How should we do school? Because the assumption is we have to open school, even though, as Chris has already said, we didn't prepare schools to be open. We didn't retrofit. We didn't do any, any of those kinds of like um, pieces that we need to focus on when this is like an airborne disease, right? So I think that people should be, of course, fairly reluctant to enter a building. But beyond the entering of the building, I just don't see a lot of conversations about what other ways schooling could be, could be or could occur or could be supported without it falling entirely on parents, right? Like that's also the thing that I think is a legitimate concern. It's like now parents have their kids all the time and we, yes, we love them, but they're not really meant to do all of this labor. There's such a distance in my mind between having kids at home at your dining room versus having them in, like I said, a poorly ventilated building. There's such a push in New York City and in other large cities to get these kids back into school. And the buildings are crumbling, like you said. You know, the thing is, they were crumbling before this pandemic hit. And we were fine sticking them in that building. Absolutely. So, on, lead, so, in, lead in the pipes, asbestos in the walls. Yep, I totally agree. Poor, I mean, we're, we're talking about how poorly ventilated this is. And when, when asthma is literally an epidemic in certain neighborhoods, certain black and brown neighborhoods, asthma is literally an epidemic. And then you want to ask why. And so, like, we know that these buildings were not really optimized <laughs> optimized let's say right because I, I don't want i don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good but they really wasn't they weren't good they weren't good though they weren't even good this is the, the, the barely acceptable being the enemy of awful <laughs> <laughs> if we could just admit for a second that maybe those schools especially in the neighborhoods that i'm thinking of like black and brown neighborhoods weren't prepared then like now that we've had this moment maybe throwing them back into school isn't the deal. Like, hey, listen, if these school buildings are poorly ventilated, like you said, Jason, asbestos in the walls, lead in the pipes, like, and yeah, parents have to go to work because that's the capitalist society they're in. 
can we not devise a middle ground? Like, is there not a way for us to educate kids? Like, did we ever stop to ask that question amidst all this? I don't really think so. Like, why are we sending kids to school? In the beginning, parents were so furious that schools were closed, so furious they had to be home with their kids. I guess what struck me about all that is just sort of the, the entitlement perhaps, just like, wow, you really thought someone else was going to deal with the education of your kid. Like you didn't want to be involved in this way. Like that, no judgments. I just thought that was interesting. You know, like, how can you say that though? There's an actual profession of educating kids. So that has to be legitimate, right? And it's not to tear that down. And it's not to say your kids don't need teachers. It's just that like, I think there is something to be gained about including the home in the educative space. Maybe not five days a week, maybe not eight hours a day. But I think there, I don't want to throw the the baby out with the bathwater. This was hard for parents and I'm going to give it to parents and I'm I'm not trying to come for anyone. If we're thinking about educating kids, there were some positive things for this homeschooling virtual environment. Can we not retain them and retain them as we think about opening the schools? Like what's, what's possible? Well, I'm with you with asking those questions. I totally agree. And, you know, here we have four kids in this house and two of the four, I think we would say are doing better with the distance learning. Now, look, I say that, and obviously we've got, if we've got stable internet, you know, we've got a safe, warm home. Uh, we've got a room in the house for every single person. There's a room for every person. Our kids are enrolled in schools that are doing a, a fairly good job with it. Those are all things like, you know, we know lots of families don't have access to, unfortunately. But I think the questions you're asking, Chris, are exactly the right ones. And I'll tell you the truth. Prior to the pandemic, I don't think it ever would have occurred to me to like homeschool my kids. I'm using that term broadly, whatever that might mean. After this, like, I mean, I, I have the question in my mind, like, well, I mean, I want my kids to have lots of opportunities for social interaction and sports and that kind of thing, but that doesn't have to require that they go to a school building for school in the traditional sense every day for six hours. Like, that's a real question I'm asking myself. I think the reason why we've been trapped with the should we open school is because we actually haven't asked that question about any other place. Like, we haven't really been thoughtful about how various spaces can be optimized to deliver and do what they need to do. Be specific, what spaces? So when I think about schooling, it's clear to me that you probably don't want your kids inside the school, but can they be outside the school? Can they interact in some way that you have that social time that is necessary? Like, it's just like, I think some of the research about how the transmission of the virus actually happens could actually be utilized to make a case for a kind of interesting sort of weird hybrid version of what's what's possible. But I haven't seen that even really be introduced. All all that we're asked to do is to hate teachers for wanting to not be in bad buildings and to be upset with parents for wanting their kids to be somewhere else. I mean, so those are the kinds of things that I think we're reduced to when I think we could actually have a more nuanced conversation about given the crisis, what are some optimal solutions around some of the tra- the challenges, right? Kids are stuck at home and isolated. They don't have to be. Like, what, what could we do as a neighborhood or as an association exactly. of parents? You know, like, what are those kinds of things that are possible? Jason said something earlier about homeschooling. For so long, like, we always think of the opposite of in-person school to be homeschooling. That seems to be, like, the dichotomy and, like, yeah. this idea that you're normal if you have in-person schooling and you're a weirdo if you're being homeschooled, <laughs> you know, like we've had that dichotomy. And I'm saying like this moment has opened up the middle. There's a camp in Pennsylvania who at the end of, in the spring, when this pandemic hit, they were offering, when schools went online, they offered their grounds and buildings. So they would have kids come with their computers to the campground and they have these huge spaces, spacious buildings and they'd turn on the fan, they put one kid at each one huge round table for 12 people, so they're socially distanced. And then they would just, they all went to different schools and they all did their work there. They were in the room with other kids and when they were time to take breaks, they can go outside and run around. That's great. One, the kids are not with their parents. Two, they're being educated. Three, they're not in a school building. That's not necessary for the learning to happen. 
I loved that model. I thought that was really great. It gets the socialization piece because they can socialize with each other and it was outside and the risk was reduced, right? Top of that, parents who go to work. It's not clear to me why we don't continue to innovate in that way. Imagine if you could identify smart kids of color who would have an opportunity if not for their failing district and you were able to connect them to an online virtual education experience that would reach them where they were, but free themselves up from the failures of the education uh, cabal in their particular locality or city. That, that's where my mind goes. But no, instead we're talking about like, oh, when can kids be in school? How quickly can that happen? Again, it's the well, fetishization of normal. I, I just- Well, I mean, beyond I that, though, I think Jason, I think Jason makes a good point about how society's structured, right? I think what you're asking for is an unpacking of a structural setup that we ha- we're not really, 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 really ready to visit, revisit, right? To think about how do you do this differently? I've been, you know, in my other life, I'm sponsoring programs and helping folks. And one of the things that we had to do was we had to make sure that the kids had laptops. We had to make sure they had hotspots. I mean, we had to do a lot of things to make sure that students were able to access all of the things that may come naturally to others, um, you know, depending on their parents' status. But I felt like that was probably a reasonable accommodation that I think is probably cheaper and more cost-effective in the long run. Um, now, of course, that's not to say that neighborhoods shouldn't have broadband and you know right. <laughs> the internet right. shouldn't be a utility. <laughs> but oh, that's I a mean, whole conversation. well, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, I right? think that, well, let's not have that's, it now, but. But that's probably what the big issue, right? Mm-hmm, is So mm-hmm. there is something to be said for making sure that kids had what they needed to have a baseline support for their online learning. But I, I was also thinking about how we didn't use TV, how we didn't use like, um, you know, mailing things home. Like, I don't know. Like I was just thinking about all the different ways that you could have optimized learning, but we seem to be really trapped in like this model of how to do it. The other thing too is how you do online learning. Why were we trying to imitate sitting in a classroom for online learning? Like, I need you to put on your outfit. I need you to sit still. Like, also, that part of it was Oh, well, first of all, kids are not doing that. I tell you that straight up. They were trying. They're not wearing anything, okay? (laughs) They're in bed. Believe me, kids were not. Cameras are off, and teachers get upset. Teachers are like, I need you to turn your camera on. And the question is, well, why? Why do you yeah, I was asking, how do you all feel about that? Because I think that's also part of why there was so much resistance is the idea of how kids learn, mm-hmm. which is the structure, the sitting up in the seat, the all of those other pieces. Don't you mm-hmm. think all of those are part and parcel of people's ideas about how learning occurs for kids? Well, uh, that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. It's so funny that you say it because my daughter just yesterday was like, you know, every time I walk by my brother's computer, his camera's off and it's not just his, all the kids' cameras are off. And I have kind of mixed feelings about it. Like I, as, as a former teacher, you know, it makes a big difference being able to see my students' faces and know it, get a sense of, are you getting it? And look, I do think, I mean, I don't think you have to be sitting up, you know, bolt upright to learn at the same time. We know there are certain physical postures that are going to be more receptive to learning. Um, but I think you're, st- I think you're asking the right questions. You know, I'm reminded of a conversation we had prior to our winter break about the post office. And what's interesting here is that, you know, I, I in that conversation, I was kind of saying like, well, we're, we're just, we're stuck on this model and cause we've invested in this model. And I think in that conversation, honestly, Tricia, you convinced me that in the example of the post office, we may have for now the best model and we should not be undermining it. In education, we could list lots of data points that shows that we do not have the best model. Mm. And yet I think, and and I'm going to bring in party politics for just a minute here, which is like, in this case, like with the post office, I think the left is right to protect the post office as it is. Frankly, in this case, I think the left is a big part of the problem. The left is so invested in education as we currently deliver Mm -hmm. it for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. And this is something, again, different from the post office that we should be reimagining that we should not let the way we've invested in it thus far uh, confine us, constrain us from doing what's best for kids in this moment and beyond. Wow. Well said. 
I is there a way for this you. to be research-based though? Do you all know the best way for kids to learn? And has that been really made clear here? People have been asking that question. There's there's books, there's dissertations, all sorts of stuff is written on that. Although let me say, we've not invested nearly enough in that question virtual, which to your point, Chris, we've had plenty of time to do it. And I'm not saying there are no studies, but like I've been spending a lot of time because of my day job looking at like tutoring research. We have so much research on what works in person. We've done, and this is how we were just unprepared for this moment and shame on us. Cause again, it's been years and years that we could have been doing this research. We have so little research about what's effective for kids virtually. Now, I think we could be doing action research right now and develop. And I think some people are. I to, mean, to, we, I mean, we've been doing the research the past year. I mean, the data is about to stream in. Yeah. That's, that's, that's <laughs> right? fair. Yeah. Look, what I, do you think? Can I, can I ask this one question? Cause I think people have been using this to defend it. What do you think about this debate from a black and brown kids perspective. I was that's that's exactly how I was going to wrap it up. You know, I I'm going to be extremely naked about this. Um as naked as By I the am way, right now. His robe is off. The, the robe has, has come off. Chris has literally disrobed right before that comment. <laughs> it's too hot in this robe. So I, I, I'm going to be extremely naked in this is that throughout this entire pandemic I've been thinking solely about black and brown kids in poor neighborhoods because I was like, you know what? This is a crisis. But you know what they say, a crisis is also an opportunity. And I was like, I can see a way in which we can, this I mean, this is what drives the question for me. I can see a way is that we can sort of utilize what we've learned in this past year to really raise up black and brown kids in poor neighborhoods and give them better access to education. And a lot of it is gonna come to one, doing research, two, really thinking about how kids learn, like, and just asking the fundamental questions that you're asking, Trisha, like, I mean, is it about sitting still? Is it about getting yourself together? Is it about like facing the camera? Like, is that how this would work? And going back to your point, Jason, there's just not enough research. Like I've observed enough online classes in the past couple of months. Like I said, these kids are lounged the F out. You know, they're, okay, they're watching TV. You know, they have their little sister on their lap. The dogs are running in and out, you know? And listen, that's fine for some kids and not fine for others. We just That's need right. to have an identification right. rubric for that, right? And 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 be able to dynamically respond to that in real time, you know? So yes, when it comes to black and brown kids, I think this is an amazing opportunity because not for nothing. And if you're listening, if you're listening and you are a white person in the suburbs, be offended. I don't give a shit, but listen up. Like, White kids in the suburbs are going to be fine. They're going to be fine by design. Okay. Like, that's why I'm really focused on this. Like I talked to a lot of white kids and a lot of white parents over the past couple of years. And, you know, some schools are definitely doing better than others, but for the most part, they are making it happen for their students in their communities. Um, Well, because, because what do we know are the correlating factors for why kids do well? It's all the other things that are surrounding. Yeah, mm-hmm. nutrition, mm-hmm. you have books at home, your parents are college Broad educated, band. your parents have time to spend with you and they're not working three jobs. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the pandemic didn't materially change that for some, um, exactly. although it did because it will for some, for, for mothers who were trying to have it all, right? Mm-hmm. And that became a problem. But I do think that we have given over a lot in this discussion to villainizing individuals and mm-hmm. really not really deconstructing institutions. Yeah. And we don't have to be in love with them. We can say that this is not working and shift oh. gears a little bit. Like I would, I would, been, shit. I've been, I've been hoping for this for my entire career is that we <laughs> look at schools, deconstruct them. Um, and listeners, this is approximately the seventh episode where we discuss education. It's going to be the thing at the top of the show, race, media, culture, politics, and education. I mean, it's our, yeah. it's our common core. It's, it's our common. Oh, well, wah, wah. well played. Well played, Trisha. Was it? Uh, oh boy. Okay. So we're, we're Chris is not impressed with that pun. We're going to move on to our second topic. Uh, Trisha, why don't you bring it to us? A topic came across my timeline a couple of days ago that um, American filmmakers want to redo a Korean film called Train to Busan. And then I thought to myself, 
we just had the fantastic experience of a Korean film last year that didn't actually need to be redone at all. We all watched Parasite in Korean and got a heck of a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what is lost or gained by attempting to Americanize a foreign film? Like, maybe we can start more directly. What would, what would we have lost if someone had seen Parasite and said, you know, we're not going to send it over here to you as it is, but we're going to redo it. We talked about this when we had our special episode about Parasite. I remember us having a conversation about how the economics of the movie is really the villain in the movie, right? The mm-hmm. It's the driving force behind what's happening in the film, sort of the upstairs, downstairs, haves and have nots. I remember us talking about the fact that it's because neither, none of us are Korean or from that culture is that we can understand and receive most of it, but the particular context and nuance of it is probably lost on us because the kind of poverty being displayed, we don't really have any idea how common it is, et cetera, et cetera. This, all the markers just aren't there for us. The question underlying your question is that, did that interrupt our enjoyment of the movie? Did it interrupt our ability to receive what the filmmaker was trying to deliver? I would say no, just based on all the stuff that I've read that the director had put out about it. To ask a question on your question, is that true for every movie? There are some movies which come from cultures that I think it would be, I'm just theorizing, but I I can see a, a movie coming from a culture where it'd be impenetrable to American audiences. So I wonder if then changing it to to bring the theme to people is worthwhile. Jason? Well, I'm probably going to be kind of elitist and snobbish and condescending in what what I say. (laughs) Um, I think it's unfortunate. There are a lot of Americans, some people I know, that don't like reading subtitles. And also- Grown people, like adults, come on. What? You You think that that- Listen- the, why do why does Hollywood remake? And we could come up with lots of examples of movies that started out as foreign films and they remade. Why? Because they're going to sell a lot more tickets if people don't have to read subtitles. Yes, maybe not in our you know. Again, this is why we're, we may be kind of elites in this okay, sense. Like maybe hard. not in our circles, but there are a lot of Americans that don't want to read subtitles and want it curated, curated no beyond curated, want it adapted um, to sound and look like what's familiar. And so that's a, you know, that's a financial motivation for Hollywood. I think that, you know, my answer to your question, Trish, I, I think I'm sure we, we lose things. I mean, I don't, I, I sometimes enjoy watching a film that's been adapted from uh, a foreign film, but I, I always kind of want to see the, the original foreign film first, because I'm sure there's other stuff in it. I'm sure I, I miss some stuff in it. And yet there's probably lots that I enjoy about it. I, but I, again, I do think it's unfortunate. I think largely as a society, we tend not to value things that come from other places to the extent that uh, I I think we lose out in in the ways that we don't. Yeah, I think for me, it's the question is less about sort of like the the monetization aspect of it, right? Obviously people are like, well, if I put it in English, then more people have access to it. But for me, it's really about why would you not want to seek access to something that's other than you? Like, why would you not want to participate in an experience that, reflects back on you a little bit because that's why that's why you travel right you travel to go to a place that's different and when you're in that different place things happen to you so a film is similar right it's it's a similar journey and you want it to be and i think here is the elitism that jason was referring to you you want it to be you know what i'm struck by i remember in ray bradbury's fahrenheit 451 and it's a alternate future where they burn book and the, the main character's wife has a part of the house where it's just all televisions, right? It's a wall of TVs on three different sides. And, and she every- has these things in her ears that she listens to things, yes. which we all now do, but go ahead. Yeah. And so she's just watching the TV and every now and then on all the different TV faces, they'll occasionally say her name. 
right? Which captures her attention. And it just delivers her stuff that she wants to hear. And by the end of the book, she has a fourth wall enclosed in her to completely block out the outside world and just get information that's catered for her. Now, what's funny when he wrote this over 50 years ago, he had no idea that that's exactly what we would be doing. So like you ask the question, like, you know, or, or you pose you pose it like, well, that's why we travel. We want to sort of step outside our comfort zone and learn. I think the last couple of years have shown us that that is one way of thinking about it, but there's another popular way of thinking about it is that I want to feel good about the media I'm taking in all the time. I don't want to be challenged. I, I, don't, I don't want to, to receive anything that's difficult for me. I don't want to hear any bad news. I mean, we see this, we see this <laughs> jukebox musicals on Broadway. Trisha, you famously said like Mama Me and the rest of that, that's for people who find musicals challenging. They want to sit there and they want to hear music they're familiar with and bop their heads. You know, that's who that's yeah, for. Yeah, and I don't really like to judge. It's not a thing where I want to judge your taste, but I sort of, I want to judge the, the failure to inhabit the other, right? The other S, the other outside of you, someone outside of you. Like that really bothers me because that is like a fundamental part of the human experience is the recognition that someone is not an extension of you. Welcome to America, Tricia. We don't learn other languages. <laughs> we don't. I, we only speak English. That's all. This is the only country where people are suspicious of you if you speak another language. Like, no, who but do you, you know, think what you I, are? But, Why do you I'm speak in, Spanish? Like, what? But what I'm inviting you all to do is imagine what it is. Is what is it? What it is that you are gaining? I'm not sort of saying to be derisive, but not at all. I'm not trying to be dismissive, even. Mm-hmm. But I'm like. Can you imagine what you're gaining by sort of like inhabiting this other world and like thinking like, well, wow, that's different than how we would do it. Or, oh, this is really interesting. You know, it's like, like when you like take a movie and then like, I'm going to Americanize it. Like, I just, it's just so weird to me because I'm like, what part of it? Like what parts of it? I mean, because, you know, audience, I have to admit that this is an interesting question to me because I've often wondered about adapting things. I've always been fascinated by adapting things from a novel to a film and all of those kinds of things. So, but this actually is a cultural adaptation. That's what this is. It's cultural adaptation. So I also think it's super interesting what you're adapting. Like, what are you adjusting for in American culture? <laughs> that's, that's a fascinating question. Cause the question is what do the people who are making the American version, what do they think about Americans? Cause it's extremely revealing, right? There yeah. was a British show called Coupling um, mm. about oh, yes. six white people who have like relationships with each other. It was basically friends, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or in that same vein. Coupling, I uh, one, one year I was home and I just got all the DVDs back then and I watched it. It was very funny, the UK version. It was so successful, they thought they'd bring it to America. The first episode of the American version was the same script as the UK version, strikingly less funny. (laughs) I can imagine. It was the same (laughs) script. They were still at a dinner party. No, something about someone flashing their tits. It was the same exact plot. And what's, what I was left with was like, someone saw the British version and said, we can make this American. And they made it less funny. And I was like, I don't know. Well, I don't know if it, you know what the the, message here. Oh my God. You totally just got me. Cause you know what? I hate the British version of the office. I was just thinking the office when you were talking (laughs) and I was thinking, you know what? In this case, the American one's really good. So, well, you know what it is it though. That's, but you know what it is. They got it. So the difference, cause you know what it is. It's a sociological experiment, right? Like, or not an experiment. It's a sociological experience, which is how do people, inhabit office spaces. Yeah. You're not going to translate what people do in British offices to American offices. Or what would be funny in a British office culture versus what would be funny. Well, it's in funny a in a, exactly. And I guess that is probably what's going on. So maybe there is some value to that. Maybe I've actually confounded myself. I mean, as you say that, Trisha, I think we, we could probably identify there are thoughtful, interesting adaptations <laughs> and there are ones that aren't. No, seriously. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I've never been much into the Western genre, um, mm. but I know that there have been these interesting like Westerns that are adaptations of samurai movies, right? And that's yeah. it's kind of an interesting idea. I mean, I, again, I haven't really watched many of them, but like that's kind of interesting where someone you know, or several people said there's something 
in this culture of this like Western cowboy that is somehow resonant of, you know, resonant with, um, with samurai uh, from hundreds of machismo. years ago. Yeah, it's the yeah. machismo and it's the closed set of like expectations. Like there are, there are qualities that define a cowboy and there are qualities that define a samurai. And it's, it's, it's got some sort of masculine tradition as well too. So I think also that's a, a, code that's of, the, a code of ethics, living, code of ethics living and dying by your weapon. There's a romanticism yep. around it. So, so like, to me, that's pretty neat. Like it's an interesting, interesting. thing. Then there's like point of no return being <laughs> a adaptation of La Femme Nikita and yeah, that was bad. Was, the the Femme Nikita I mean, was better. I agree. It is. <laughs> I agree. It was like, come on, you could just show the Femme Nikita. I know people don't want to read subtitles, but come on, it'd be it'd be better. I guess I, I guess what it reveals to me is that if something is like a morality play for that culture, I think it's best that it stays that way. Good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's probably what it is. I mean, if it's about values and morals, like trying to adapt that, not just adapt it, but trying to translate that, I think is just fraught in the first place. But going back full circle to Parasite, which again, if you have not seen it, see it, please. It's incredible. So good. And oh if you want to, if, if the concept of, if you want to be freaked out by the concept of time, that won the Oscar last year. That seems like <laughs> yeah, 7,000 yeah. years ago. Like I that, can't believe that was last year. Like that was said that just now, last like, year. No, wait a second. That I feel like I feel like I saw that movie in a different world, which I did. <laughs> but you know, the thing about Parasite, which is again, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it too much. But it really is about have and have nots, and the way that they interact, and the things that are true across economic lines. Even though we don't know the particulars and the vagaries of Korean economics, it it translates, right? I don't I know so. though. I think so. But you know, it's funny, right? Because are there countries and cultures where it couldn't translate? Are there are there countries and cultures like where there isn't that kind of extreme wealth or that extreme poverty where right. someone watching it just couldn't relate? Yeah. Like Korea and America are similar enough on that axis right. that mm-hmm. it makes sense. But you know, there's there's other countries that you go to. I mean, from the, the snowy north, Iceland and Finland, who have completely different economic situations to like places in South America where I do not think it would read the same exact way. Um, and and that's that's intriguing. So when you say like, if it's a morality play, it should stay. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think, I think you're right. But also, or rather what I guess I'm saying, if there are broader themes, you don't need to translate them. Well, I mean, that's my hope. My hope is that there's a, there are broader themes broader themes that connects us as humans mm-hmm. and that the translation becomes unnecessary mm-hmm. right and i but i but it is interesting because i think somebody said quite dismissively well train to busan has a whole train system and the united states doesn't have that so i don't know how you're gonna really <laughs> we won't even be able to understand why are people getting on the goddamn train drive your car is there a car to busan why are there trains there I mean, even the idea of a train, tra- of train travel is like entirely un-American. Like it's just not part of the romance of America. Mm. Like the car is America. The train is actually not. Yeah. <laughs> our trains are so, our trains are like basically like a latrine on a track. You go, you, you go to Europe or Asia and you swear you're in a goddamn spaceship. Um <laughs> Well, also, I suspect the movie is also about infrastructure, and you know how we don't do infrastructure. You're like, what? (laughs) Um, um, So we're going to move on to media recommendations for something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason? So my wife has introduced me to Big Bang Theory, which we have been binge watching for the past several weeks. Is it funny? I find it. Oh my God, I find it so, there have been multiple times, I'm not exaggerating, I had to take breaks. Like I was worried I was gonna pass out. It is so, I'm sorry, that character of Sheldon Cooper and Parsons acting in it. Oh my goodness. I am shocked. I, I just, I'm shocked that a CBS show could be that funny. I think it's brilliant. Does that I mean? Think... Does that mean you've crossed a particular age threshold? <gasps> are you an old now, Jason? <laughs> what the characters are young, <laughs> but CVS is for old people. 
I didn't even know it was CBS. We watch it on HBO Max. I don't know. I find it very funny. That's, so it's funny. It's interesting. It's so funny. I'm so surprised. I really am. Huh. Can you describe it for people who are not familiar? It, yeah, it's a very simple concept. It's, you know, four guys who are kind of ultra nerds. They're very, they're in their 20s. They're very successful astrophysicists, et cetera. Really bad social skills, but they're all different from each other in different ways. And a young aspiring actress who happens to be really attractive moves across the hall and um, you know, one of them falls for her and, but it's, it's, you know, at a deeper level, I think it's really about the challenges of socialization for some people. My only context for the big bang theory is that across my timeline floated a couple of pictures of the lead actor, Jim Parsons, Jim Parsons. And the whole I, the whole point of this is that Jim Parsons does not want to return to the Big Bang because he's literally very hot. And the whole thing is like fans are realizing that Big Bang's Jim Parsons is actually hot. And these new photos, he looks fantastic. I just shared them. Look at them. He's amazing looking. He's um, a really good looking guy, but his acting is perfect. Is right? Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Good timing. Wow, you know what? Cute. I accidentally watch it when I'm like at some at some older person's house, and I'm like, "What's this on?" Is Jason? Is Jason the older person you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm I'm younger than you two, so shut no, up. No, no, oh, no, no. Wow. It, well, it, it does happen though. No, that listen. You're telling this. Do you know? For the longest time, they they were the highest paid cast, the highest rated show for that. years. Yeah, I saw that, I and I never saw it. Like I never. I was like I was kind of somewhat aware of it, and then never seen an episode to it. And it's. I will. You know what? On your recommendation, I'll look at a couple of episodes. Trisha, what about you? What's your media recommendation? Everyone should have seen it already. I feel like this doesn't need to be said, but I will just reiterate to everyone. It's time to see Bridgerton. Take your time. Sit Can you down. Describe it for people and watch Bridgerton. Bridgerton is um, is the first of I suspect an eight part series. By the way, <laughs> it's the first of an eight part series, um, which is an adaptation of some actually a pretty normal romance novel. Pretty normal romance novels um, about the British ton. But I think what's exciting to people about Bridgerton is that Shonda Rhimes is um, the producer of it. And so she's brought her Shonda treatment, which is she's racialized it in some way. Um, it's obvi- it's a romance novel where the people are all white, but in the, Brid- in the TV version, the lead um, hero is a black guy. And it's about uh, the woman, it's about the eldest daughter coming up to her first season where she must get married or consequences will follow for her family. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? It was perfect timing. Uh, it came out during the Christmas break. It was one of the best, the most watched and Netflix shows. Um, and it has now been renewed. And season two will be the second brother. And the interesting news about that um, will be the brother um, is that the lead, again, is going to be an interracial romance. So they cast... Um, an Indian woman, I think. Hmm. Anyway, yeah. um, but anyway, so it's noteworthy that they've cast somebody who is um, South Southeast Asian um, for um, for that film. I'm not saying interracial love story is the pinnacle of anything. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm happy that Black people got paid. I'm happy that the show was a lot of fun, and um, it's popcorn. It's popcorn. It's no more than that. Many <laughs> I, I, um, that's another show that my wife introduced me to, but I, I'm not yucking your yum, uh, Trisha. Oh, it wasn't for you. It's not for you. It's not for me. And and in the what I found most irritating was just, and this is another Shonda Rhimes thing. Besides the like post racial world that she always builds, is like the um, the music being so intrusive like there's this music it's like modern tunes but being played as if they're classical and it's like just so intrusive it reminded me of Grey's Anatomy where I just like I'm like can someone turn the music off I'm trying to hear oh, the dialogue come on anyway, I'll shut up. oh no no it's totally fine <laughs> I mean Jason, Jason let's get you back a yuck my young person you know look I mean? at him look Jason. at him I am I mean, younger than you two listen in this I'm the youngest one on this podcast that he tells us that we watch we need to watch Big Bang Theory I was gonna say let's get you some jello and get you into bed okay it's <laughs> a little late let's Let's, let's, I'm going to give my recognition. Then we're going to wrap it up. I swear you'll be in bed soon. Okay, five more minutes. 
Um, Jello. Here's your Jello, sir. My, uh, make sure you eat all of it because we hid your pills in there. So, <laughs> I, my, we're all recommending things to watch. I'm going to recommend the most popular show on the planet Earth currently, which is Ooh. Disney Plus's WandaVision. WandaVision oh. is a continuation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which explores what happened to the character Wanda Maximoff and Vision after the events of Age of Ultron and Infinity War, where we watch Vision be killed by Thanos during the snap. The show is brilliant. First thing, they have Disney money. So they were like, let's make a great show. I just, I can imagine that was their framing. They were just like, okay, well, let's just make the most watched show on the planet earth. Yes, yes, everyone good around the table, great. Just write the check. The show is great. It's really, I don't wanna give anything away, right? But it's, it's really a show about trauma and loss and grief. And Wanda creates this world where Vision is still alive. And that's the only spoilery thing I'll give, but then again, his name's in the title. And every episode, she creates a world that is similar to a family sitcom from a particular era. So the first episode is very much a 50s show, very much Bewitched, very much I Love Lucy. Then it moves to the 60s, then the 70s. You get to the 80s and it's very growing pains. 90s, it's very Malcolm in the middle. The aughts, it's very modern family. And they've gone through such pains to get the same camera angles, the film type, the pacing, the plotting, the laugh track. So you feel like you're actually watching a show, the show in the show. So just aesthetically, I find it extremely pleasing. But then of course, the story that continues, the story has been going on for like 12, 13 years. And I just love that they are using this medium to tell comic book stories, which are just serial stories. And I just cannot believe it took them this long to figure it out. So congratulations to Marvel and Disney. You may continue to take all of my money. Um, I've been paying you for years and I'm not going to stop now. So there it is. <laughs> but I mean, people are loving it anyway. It's and great. I think people are having so, a good time with the show. So that's cool. I mean, you know what? Good. I, you know what? We, didn't, we didn't take any chances in these recommendations. WandaVision, Bridgerton, and Big Bang Theory. All hits. Like, <laughs> did we offer anything <laughs> I mean, to anybody? You pick, you, you pick your poison. Um, it's <laughs> pandemic watching. We want you to enjoy oh, yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Talk about not wanting to be challenged by anything. Let's just pick the most popular <laughs> show up and recommend. <laughs> well, you know what? You, did you see? I've just given you controversial takes. Some people really hate Bridgerton because of the race issue. And some people, some people really hate that because of its white fantasy. And some thing. people hate Big Bang Theory because, you know, olds. And also there are no black people on it. Yeah, that's uh, true. There are no definitely true. And it so, is also it is quite offensive at times. I mean, it, it tries to be and it succeeds. Well, yeah, I mean, the, you know, comedy and all. Yeah, this and has all. been fun. This has been fun. So everyone out there, please uh, just go to Netflix or Disney Plus and just click on the first recommendation <laughs> yeah. is we did not dig too deep. America. Yeah, click we did not one. dig too deep. So <laughs> you shouldn't either. And on that note, everybody. <laughs> Good night. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Ha 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 ha!